Welcome to Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and I am your host. So, uh, today's episode is going to be another supplemental. I had planned to have episode 5 recorded and released this week. However, I have the script done, and as I started recording it, I... I didn't like it. Honestly, I felt like it was a little weak, and it was going to be a really short episode, only about 15 minutes, and that was just... I could add more to it. I can get a little bit further. So I'm going to go ahead and just release this supplemental episode, uh, as it's going to be a little bit simpler, and that'll give me time to kind of improve episode 5 some. Uh, That being said, uh, today's show is going to be discussing the quest for fire. which is a 1981 film uh, based on the book of the same title, which is ni- which was written in 1911. Um, the actual title, or the title in its uh, original French, is La Guerre de Feu, uh, which is literally the War for Fire. Uh, that's also the name of the film in French. Uh, it was written in 1911 by J. H. Rosny, which is a pseudonym. Uh, for uh, two brothers, actually, they each kind of wrote their own things and then released it under that name. But this book was written by the older of the two, uh, Joseph Henri Honor B. I believe is how that last name is pronounced. Uh, and the film is based on the book. Um, there's some differences between them as in all adaptations. I think the book is said to take place 100,000 BC, whereas the film's 80,000 BC. Um, the book also has some more extreme, uh, like outside groups of the uh, the hero tribe. Uh, there are supposedly some really weird uh, dwarves and like hairy hairy humans that like have four hands. Uh, it's a little bit more fantastical and not as based on fact, at least when it comes to the other hominids that they encounter. The movie's much more um, based in reality. um, Or at least based in history, I should say. Um, So, let's go ahead and get into the specifics of it. Um, We'll start with casting and um, I guess creative team behind this. So, it was directed by Jean-Jacques Anand, and the screenplay was written by Gerard Brock. It was uh, nominated for, I believe, 10 Academy Awards. It won one, uh, which, uh, for best makeup, and if you watch this, the makeup still holds up really well. I'm, I'm very impressed with it. Uh, and it stars um, Everett McGill, Ray Don Chong, Ron Perlman, and Namir El-Khadi. Um, Everett McGill, of course, uh, you may know him also from Twin Peaks. He played Big Ed. Uh, Ron Perlman, of course, is famous for Hellboy. He's also a very prolific voice actor in a number of other projects. Uh, uh, Namir El-Khadi is also known as Nicholas Cotty. Um, he is... Honestly, I had some trouble finding him like in some big name stuff, but um, he's been in a lot of things, just kind of more bit parts. Uh, Ray Don Chong is, uh, she's in a bunch of movies. Uh, she is in The Color Purple. 
Uh, she's in Commando. She was the female lead in that movie, uh, which is a great Arnold Schwarzenegger 80s movie. Uh, I highly recommend that. <laughs> but she's uh, she's been in a lot of different movies, and she's a very good actor. And this, uh, this is probably, though, one of her best acted roles. Um, there is no dialogue in this movie. It is, um, well... I say that. There is actually a dialogue, but it's an invented language. There's no subtitles. So um, it's just kind of there to kind of show that these hominids are communicating with each other. They have a language. They do speak. Um, they based the language on um, a Cree and Inuit languages uh, that were spoken in Canada, which is where most of the movie was filmed. Um, and it was actually developed by the author of um, Clockwork Orange. And I, God, I'm drawing a blank on his name. I'll have to look that up. It's going to drive me insane until I think about it. But while I'm looking that up, um, the box office, I think, worldwide was $20 million, which is not terrible. Um, I think the budget is was uh, twelve million. Um, not bad. So it, it definitely made a pro uh, profit. Uh, let's see. It's an hour and forty minutes, so it's not uh, not too too long. It's actually a very brisk uh, movie. <clears throat> So, let's get to the plot. Um, the characters, again, there is dialogue, but it's not translated, and the characters are not given names. Uh, you just have to kind of look at, uh, know them based on their face, which isn't hard. All the characters have their very own, you know, very unique designs. They're easily identifiable, even with a ton of makeup. Uh, Everett McGill's character is known as Noah. Ron Perlman is known as Omokar. Uh, Nicholas Cotty is Gaul, and Ray Don Chong is Ika. Uh, they are members of a tribe known as the Ulam. Uh, well, excuse me. Uh, McGill, Perlman, and Cotty are members of the uh, tribe Ulam. Uh, Ray Don Chong comes into the story later. <clears throat> Essentially, uh, they are cavemen. And they are driven from their home by a more primitive, uh, stronger um, tribe. Uh, they're very ape-like. Uh, I think maybe these are supposed to be like considered maybe similar to Homo erectus. Um, they're again, they're not credited for anything, but I think in the script they're referred to as the Waga or the Wagbu, something like that. Uh, <clears throat> So the Ulam are forced to free from their home, and they go to a, uh, they go to hide in a marsh. However, their their fire that they keep um, is extinguished uh, while they're retreating into the marsh. They do not know how to make fire themselves, so the tribal leader sends three the three main characters Noah, Amakor, and Gaul on a quest to find the you know, quest to find fire. And, of course, um, as a lot of 1980s high-adventure movies, uh, you know, they meet numerous <laughs> and hostile groups along the way. Uh, they, 
um, have several fights with uh, you know other primitive looking peoples. Uh, they run across some cannibals. They have to deal with saber tooth tigers, which are just lions with prosthetic uh, teeth, kind of like on their faces, which is incredible. Um, I, I'm assuming the same uh, staff did the makeup on them for the the humans. They probably just uh, kind of fashioned some very, very actually good looking prosthetics. Um, and one thing I liked about that is they're chased up a tree by these uh, saber-toothed tigers, uh, and they just kind of sit around and wait for the lions to leave. But the lions aren't in any hurry, so they start to get hungry, and they just start eating leaves off the trees, which, you know, we know from what we've discussed in these episodes that plants are a very, port of, uh, very important part of Homo sapiens' diet, or Homo neanderthals, depending on what these are supposed to be. But eventually, they get to a tribe uh, of cannibals that have fire, and they try to steal it. Uh, while there, um, Gaul and Amokar, which is Perlman and Kadi, they lure, they you know they create a diversion uh, to lure the the cannibal tribe away from their encampment. And then those that stay behind, Noah fights and kills, uh, but he is bitten on uh, <laughs> on the genitals. Um, you know, to try and, I guess, is a dying act from one of his enemies. Um, and he's in a lot of pain from that. And then during that same raid, he rescues uh, Radon Chong, who's Ika. Uh, she's been like a captive of theirs. Uh, so she kind of, to help him, she makes a very primitive kind of um, uh, medicine to kind of help him recover from his injury. Um uh, there is some conflict between the group. Uh, Perlman's character tries to uh, have his way with Ika, but uh, she is very not into that, so she kind of goes near Noah, who then you know, decides to take her uh, in front of his two companions. Um, eventually, they continue their search for fire, um, and, well, actually, I'm sorry. So they, they obtain the fire from the cannibals, and they're trying to go home. Uh, Ika kind of follows them. Uh, but as she does, she, she recognizes where she is, and she tries to get them to go with her. Uh, eventually, they do, and then um, they are kind of... Uh, they eventually run into some more dangers, uh, quicksand, you know, that kind of stuff. But they're saved by uh, Ika's tribe, who I believe are referred to as the Avaka in the script. Um, and this is kind of a weirder part of the movie. I think they, uh, they really are kind of uh, trying to uh, humiliate Noah. It's kind of an odd thing. They humiliate him, but then they kind of... Ha- make him have sex with the high-status ladies uh, in the group. Um, and they, I do love that they did this, that the women have a very different body type than Ika. She's very small, skinny, uh, whereas all these women are larger and uh, very full-figured. Um, very much evocative of the Venuses that we'll see later. 
uh, like the Venus of Willendorf. <clears throat> and she's, you know, you can tell that she's not very well respected by her tribe. They're a little uh, dismissive of her. They, they make fun of her. They kind of bully her. Um, and they kind of, you know, keep her at, at bay. Um, it is while meeting uh, this tribe, though, uh, is probably one of the best scenes in the movie because Noah is kind of shown the the Avaka's ability to create fire. There's a great scene where he's kind of in this cave, just away on its own, and he's shown as this, uh, I guess, wise person in the Ivaka tribe sits there and slowly begins to take fuel, which looks like scat of some kind, and then a mixture of, you know, um, just small grass and other things, and then he proceeds to use a drill, uh, a fire drill, um, to create fire. And the whole time, um, McGill, Everett McGill, uh, Noah, just he just shows so much emotion, like he's just sitting there in awe, and like he's he's in tears as this as this person creates fire in front of him. And it's just, it's, it's very much like a religious experience to him. He's like uh, very much the fear and trembling, but also exaltation at this this display. Um, eventually, though, uh, Gaul and Amakor kind of find Noah, and they um, they get him out, basically. Um, <laughs> of course, Noah, you know, he, he kind of goes a little native. Uh, he doesn't want to leave them. And then... Uh, Ika kind of wants, you know, wants him to go as well. So she helps them uh, kind of kidnap Noah back from her, her tribe. Uh, then we get to um, a little bit more of the kind of like the, I guess, the pseudoscience of it. Um, when uh, Noah had had relations with Ika earlier in the movie... Uh, you know, it was very animalistic, very, you know, violent. And he tries to do the same thing when, um, after after he's away from the tribe for a little while, but she gets him to do the, uh, what's known as the missionary position. Um, that was like a thought for a while that that was like a big deal in human evolution. I don't know if that's a, if that's a new thing or if that's something that's still believed. I think that's kind of been, you know, kind of been debunked a little but i'm not 100 percent sure on that eventually they find the they get back to their home and um i'm not gonna go into spoilers but um they are beset by uh some more enemies and they um they are attacked once more but they use some uh atlatls that are that they got from the Ivanka, which are extremely uh, dangerous weapons. And um, they eventually rejoin the group. And uh, I won't, again, I won't spoil what happens once that, uh, once they return. Uh, but it is very uh, sad, but then very turns very funny very quickly. Um, it, it, it's a it's a very good movie. I highly recommend everyone should watch it. <clears throat> so uh, there are a 
course, several problems with this movie when it comes to historical accuracy. That shouldn't be a surprise, considering it's based on a book that's over 100 years old. Uh, and again, it was written very much in the infancy of uh, prehistoric uh, kind of studies. Um, I think they'd only been doing stuff, you know, on site in Africa for about 50 years at that point, and not very well. Um, obviously, you know, at 80,000 years, any successful human group that had as many members as the Ulam did, they would know how to create fire. Um, it, it wouldn't be that hard. Um, now, I will say the fact that the um, that the Ivaka, that they are using the drill, the fire drill, um, that is probably a little early. Um, at least we don't have evidence, I don't believe, of fire drills at that point. A lot of the fires would probably have just been started with um, rocks and flint and that kind of stuff and sparks. Um, and then you just slowly, like, you know, catching moss and then spreading it to um, wood and things like that. But that's not to say that there is not a some primitive kind of thing that they were using. Again, I, I'm not aware of us finding evidence that early for the fire drill, but it is definitely prehistoric. Um, another thing is the atlatls they use. Um, this would... In 80,000 years in the movie, it's possible it would be the first invention. Like, the Avaka would probably be the first tribe using them. Um, which, you know, that's... That's maybe what the movie's saying. Uh, I don't know. Um... It, it still might be a little early for the atlatls, though. We might be 20,000 years or so ahead of time. But it's, uh, you know, it is something to, you know, point out that that, that would be an extremely advantageous weapon. And it, it, it will be for Homo sapiens, um, uh, both hunting and for defense against the Neanderthals, which we will get back to in our next episode. Um, maybe not, you know, at lotto wise, but we will get back to uh, Homo sapiens interaction with Neanderthals in the next episode because that's kind of probably be our end point. Uh, and if it's not, it will definitely be in the episode after that. <clears throat> uh, so, should you see this movie? Absolutely, it's fantastic. It holds up. Uh, it is very much in the same vein of the high fantasy adventures of the 1980 films, things like Conan, or um, <laughs> maybe not, uh, maybe not on the same level as Conan. But there is also Crawl and Red Sonia, and this movie kind of has that kind of adventuring spirit, even though it's it's very much not a sword and sorcery movie. Um, but it is extremely well acted. All the actors in this do incredible jobs. You know, obviously with dialogue, you know, you can't really do a whole lot. But uh, if you think of something like um, uh, the movie Apocalypto with Mel Gibson or um, his also his Passion of the Christ, you know, those aren't in English and you're, you know, the dialogue isn't important. It's the emotion. It's the action. It's the, you know, it's the actual story uh, that's being told. 
And while the story is probably, again, not accurate, because, again, at this point in our history, if you have this many people, at least a couple of them know how many, you know, how to make fire um, with that tribe. With that tribe, excuse me. Um, I did like, in addition to, um, uh, you know, the actors playing uh, the main characters, they used, I think, wrestlers for, like, some of their opponents uh, from the, the cannibal tribe to make them very, you know, physically imposing. Uh, it was a very good idea. I think it was very well done. Mm. And the special language was written by Anthony Burgess, is the name of the author. And again, Burgess wrote A Clockwork Orange. Uh, he was um, he's a very interesting fellow. Uh, he wrote... Uh, a few different uh, comedies, uh, mostly dark comedies, but he also did a lot of translations. Uh, he was like a lecturer, I think, with um, uh, about ling- languages. Uh, I know he did a translation of Oedipus Rex that I've read, um, and I think he did some operas too. I think he translated Carmen uh, into English, I believe. Uh, now, uh, back to the quest for fire. Uh, yes, it won Best Makeup. Uh, at the Academy Awards and also uh, the British Academy Awards uh, won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. All in all, it's a very well-received movie, and uh, I think it deserves all the credit it got and probably a little bit more. Uh, the actors, too. Again, this is a extremely well-acted movie. Um, there's so much conveyed just from, you know, just from performance and uh, without dialogue. It's just, it's just the actors being their characters. Uh, it's it's a real level of immersion. Um, I believe also there were a couple of the cast members got frostbite due to them not wearing shoes because of the you know they can't really be in shoes. I think. You know, um, they tried to make it as realistic as possible, so there was not really any kind of footwear provided uh, during scenes. And even when they, I mean, a lot of the shots they did in single takes, but they still got frostbite. So, I mean, you know, luckily no one was seriously disfigured as far as I know, Um, but just a really tough crew and cast, I should say. Uh, well worth the watch very solid I'd give it um, 8 stars out of 10 Um, there is levity there is uh, you know real deep uh, emotion to it but it's not just like a stupid caveman comedy it's got a real emotional weight and I think by the time you sit down and watch it you're actually you know, a little surprised at how quickly it's over and you want to get back into the story and the world. And I think there was talk of sequels, but those never those never happened. I think um, the director he, he thought it was it was good standalone and he didn't want it he didn't want any part of the um, of any kind of sequels as far as I know. So uh, but yeah, it's it's a very very good movie. Highly recommend. But um, I think that touches on the highlights of what is 
good and accurate about the movie and the things that are inaccurate about the movie but are still useful to the story and make it a better film. I don't think there's anything that's inaccurate in this that makes it a bad movie, uh, which is really the best you can hope for uh, for a historical film, or even a prehistorical film in this case, at least in my opinion. So, But I thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this meta-episode. We will return to our regularly scheduled programming next week. Uh, then we'll probably do another two or three episodes after that, and then we will be into actual verifiable uh, history, or at least more identifiable. We'll probably get to the Neolithic Revolution uh, and agriculture, so which obviously is still prehistorical, technically speaking, but we have a lot more evidence to go on. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. It is... It's very heartening to see, actually, the reception of the show. I've had people all over the world. I, I am international now. I have a few people in Belgium and uh, Russia. And, believe it or not, uh, I have two in Italy, from what I understand. And... Uh, Canadians, and that's not even counting people I know. And of course, in the U.S., I have a few states listening. Um, and anyway, it's it's really it's really nice. It's really good to see the, the early reception. Uh, it's small, but it is growing, and I appreciate all that. And I have had had some extra feedback too. I kind of am glad I didn't go ahead and do that fifth episode because. Um, there are a couple of questions that I am going to answer from that um, next time. But uh, thank you for listening. This has been Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd. You can reach me with any questions, comments, uh, constructive criticism at waradrevpod at gmail.com. That's W-A-R-A-D-R-E-V-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thank you, and you have a wonderful day.